Okay, before I get started, though I have permission to get started, and I see both the thumbs, I need to point out something that's really extraordinary and, and something that everybody should recognize, especially in this age. The signs of the end of the age of the Gentiles. When the Gentile age is over and the tribulation is coming and the millennial reign of Christ is coming, we're going to have certain signs. And one of those signs is that Israel exists. There has to be an Israel for, all, for this to happen. And we have an Israel for the first time since essentially Babylon. We have a, we have a sovereign Israel. And now we have a war. A war has begun in the Middle East again between Hamas and Israel. As you're all aware, it's all over the news. It's all over television. So we have to have Israel in order to have a war with Israel. And, of course, the, uh, the other major signs has been world war. And we've had world war. Not in my lifetime, but it's occurred relatively proximate to my lifetime. And we have earthquakes, of course, and we have a pandemic. Oh, I hear my voice. Okay. So anyway, all of that's happening, and, and it's an, an incredible sign. Right now, we know, for example, that Iran is a proxy of Russia, and Russia, Ezekiel 38, is supposedly going to, not supposedly, but is definitively going to invade Israel at some point. And it's going to be allied with Iran. It's going to be allied with many of the Middle East countries, but specifically Iran, and that's occurring right now. And now who is supplying these weapons to Hamas? Well, that's Iran. What is the possibility that Israel bombs Iran to stop them from what they're doing? They've lost a thousand people. They have had all kinds of brutality. So a war could break out that we can't even begin to be, imagine the, the scope of it. So pay attention to that. Now, I'm supposed to be back on October 22nd. I need to say that I've been in the hospital again. And today I'm absolutely not at full capacity. I'm probably at half capacity. I think I can get through this today. I hope I can. I plan on doing it. But I just want to apologize ahead of time if I'm unable to. Okay, but we'll be back on October 22nd. Today is October 8, 2023, lecture discussion number 204 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 14, and Genesis 15. When I get to this place in any kind of lecture, uh, especially the ones before and after, I would normally begin what I call an intermediate continuation lecture. So that's what this would be called for me. That's what I would designate it. And, and I do so by refer, refreshing the lecture that spawned the debris field that I have now to clean up all over the place. I get questions littering about as uh, far as I can watch and see. And I am fully aware that the number of religious pundits who consider me, and I am the adorable HTRP, who consider me as normal, is microscopic. There's hardly any that do. Nonetheless, I cling to the normality appellation with great fervor, uh, pretending to be normal when I know that I am not considered normal by anyone and not even my immediate family. Okay, so today we're going to begin the gleaning process or the continuation aspect. And we're going to start with John 17, 11 through 12. And I'll, I have it written down here, but you can read along. I can't even begin to describe what's What's happening here? It's amazing. I get goosebumps just looking at it. Here's what Christ says. Now, I am no longer in the world, 
Well, he's in the world when he's saying that. So what does he mean by that? Obviously, right off the bat, now I am no longer in the world is an outside-of-time reference. He's saying that he is outside of time, and he's the one that has authority over time, and he's the one that causes time. But these are in the world, and I come to you. Let me read that all again because I put that commentary in it. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. A billion, a billion questions. There's an explosion. What scripture are we talking about? I think it's Genesis 3.15. But again, let's go back. Those whom you gave me, he says to the Father. And again, Jesus is, is speaking as if time has no impact on him. I'm in, I'm out, I'm not here, I am here. And actually this conversation, oops, I might hit I gotta move it over here, don't I? Is spoken aloud. Let me see if I can do this. That means it's intended by Christ to be heard. He is saying this so that his apostles will hear him, his disciples will hear him. And we and we should expect that because this is an astonishing event. The second person of the triune Godhead. So I've got the Elohim here, is speaking to the Father about the disciples, and he says that they ha- you have given them to me. So the Father has given the apostles, the disciples, to Christ. John 7, 6, John 7, 7, John 7, 8, John 7, 9, John 7, 11, John 7, 12, John 7, 14. The Father has given to the Son to be kept from the evil thing, John 7, 15. And the evil thing is a person. He has kept them from the evil thing. Now might I emphatically suggest the obvious. The Father who is in the Son and the Son in the Father. The Father has given the Son of Perdition. The evil thing. The seed of the serpent. He has given that person to the Son. Because that person, Judas, is part of the twelve. Right? So this aligns with John 6-7. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is the devil? That's what he says. In in John 7, the Father gave the devil to the Son. For he, Jesus, spoke of Judas Iscariot of Simeon, for it was he who would deliver him, being one of the twelve, John 6-71. The text then brings definitive clarity. The Elohim is involved in the inclusion of Satan and Satan's seed into the twelve apostles. The Father gave, the Son chose. Now, how do you explain this? Why does the Elohim, the us, Genesis 3.22, give and choose the seed of the serpent to be one of the twelve apostles? What's your explanation? Would anybody have expected that? If you say, yeah, oh yeah, I knew that God was going to do that, then you're not telling me the truth. No one would understand why the Father would give the seed of the serpent to the Son to be one of the apostles. That that the uh, that Christ would try to keep from the evil thing when the evil thing is one of the apostles. So again, why 
is God doing this? What is the purpose? How complex do you think this is? Why did God say what we're going to do here? And again, this is the Elohim, the us, 322 Genesis. What we're going to do is we're going to include Satan into the apostles. He's going to be one of the twelve. And the correct translation of John 6.71 is that Judas is of Simeon. And your Bibles are going to say the son of Simeon, and the son is going to be in italics. It's not in the text. It's of Simeon. Not the son of Simeon, but of Simeon, which is obviously significant. Judas then is now connected to what? The Simeon prophecy. Leading us to again ask the elemental question, why has God done this? He's put him in the twelve and he's put him in the Simeon prophecy. What's he doing? Who's it for? How many Christians do you know that even recognize this has happened? They have no idea. So who could it be for? Who else is watching, I guess is my question. What does of Simeon mean? How does Judas being described as of Simeon coordinate with the three times that Satan enters Judas? Three times Satan enters Judas. John 13.27, Luke 22.3-6, and John 13.2, and Revelation 13.4. Three times. How does that fit together with all of this? Did Satan count? Did he deliberately do it? How intelligent is he? How cunning is he? He's the most cunning of all. Obviously, all of this and much, much more will reconcile with Genesis 3.15. That's the trial of Satan with the judge of all things, John 5.22, who is the ancient of days, Daniel 7.9, Revelation 1.12-17, presiding. And that, of course, is Christ, the judge presiding over the trial of Satan in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 records the ancient of days. Again, that's Christ. He's the ancient of days. In the sentencing phase of, of Satan, he says this to him. Because you have done this. You have done this. We have to understand what this is. And I, I'm going to tell you that it is the second offense of Satan. In other words, this is the second time Satan has done this. He's a repeat offender. And because you have done this a second time, you're more cursed than anything will ever be cursed. Ezekiel 28.16 being the first offense. And the crime in both places is murder. Murder being the crime of Genesis 3.4, Jude 6. Satan was the murderer from the beginning. John 8.44, the father of lies. The this is Satan's murder of the woman. So when he murdered the woman, because you have murdered the woman, now you are accursed. And you can be nothing but accursed. For the for the this Satan again sentenced to death the second death Revelation twenty fourteen Matthew twenty five forty one that's the lake of fire that's where he's going to end up because he has done this somehow Genesis three fifteen attaches to all of these things why did Christ reveal that Satan's seed would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman why would he reveal that. Is it logical to us that he would reveal it? Note that God just informed the fallen angelic host, that's the wicked ones, the wicked, that it was possible and allowed 
for the Jude 6, Genesis 6 angels, demons, the fallen angels, to have, by a means we've yet to comprehend, have the ability to produce a Nephilimic offspring, Genesis 6. And God reveals that in the trial of Satan. The seed of the woman will have his, will, will inflict a mortal wound to the head of the seed of the serpent, but the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the, of the woman. So there, that, what does that mean? That means it's possible now to produce a seed. Ultimately, uh, the entire earth becomes only evil and murder continually, Genesis 6, 5, filled with murder, Genesis 6, 11 through 12. Who's the murderer from the beginning? Satan is. Without controversy, the cause, that which is traceable to a cause in this case, the event is the wickedness of mankind and the corruption of all flesh, which includes animals and is traceable to an event, the accursed ones, who, those who came to kill, Revelation 9.15, Genesis 6.1. For today's purposes, Christ releases the information that all flesh on the earth could be corrupted by the angelic realm. Why did he do that? We've got to ask why. Obviously, infinite, inf- infinite God. I mean, let me take a break here. Obviously, infinite God, who has, who's complete, has all the information. He has calculated, including all of the variables, so he gets a perfect answer, doesn't he? He's got every possibility. He eliminates every possibility except for the one that is perfect. Being that he's the only one who is complete. And therefore, his decision is the only correct action. Do you think, using our little tiny human puny stupid minds, that it was a wise thing to do for God to reveal to the angelic host that is, that is fallen. Of course, he also reveals it to the host that is not fallen. And to Satan that it is possible to produce a seed out of humanity with an angel. Why would he do that? So, how is it that this is the right decision? And, and where is the beginning? Satan is a lying murderer from a beginning. That is what the Bible says. So, what, where is the beginning that he has begun from? Which beginning? The most prominent beginning in Scripture is what? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, right? Is that the beginning of the beginning? Does that make any sense? Probably not. Satan is the murderer from the beginning. Which beginning did he begin to be the murderer from? Is it from the beginning of Genesis 1-1? Or is there another beginning? I hope that that question made some kind of sense to anybody. This is where I say McFly. Is Genesis 1-1 the beginning of Satan's wickedness, is my question. Or is Genesis 1-2, which seems to be the aftermath of Satan's beginning, is that the beginning? How does this coincide with the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman? Again, the word John 1-1, Colossians 1-15-18. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. He's the God of all creation. He has no beginning. Beginning is a time reference. He's the consciousness from which time itself originates. So you always have to keep that in in mind. So there is a beginning of what? Time. When was the beginning of time? 
There's not a beginning for Christ or God. They have no beginning. So there is no beginning from, there's a, a from the beginning, but there is no beginning. And if that makes any sense either, I doubt it, but let me keep going. Work that out on your own. Use your phone to figure out how that all fits together, I hope. Anyway, anyway, God announces the ability of Satan's seed to inflict pain on God himself. That's the bruising of the heel. He says, during the trial of Satan, you will have the capacity and the ability and you will hurt me. Why does he reveal that to Satan? First, he reveals that there's a possibility of having a seed with an angel and a human being. And then he says, you're going to bruise my heel. What does the bruising of the heel mean? Does anybody really have an understanding of it? Again, repeat the question. What is the bruising of the heel? And why does God let this be known? Is it tactically a good idea? Do you think this is a great idea to tell Satan what's going on? How's it all going to work? Why concede this truth to Satan? Obviously, as with Job 1.6, every angel, all angels, both faithful and fallen, are watching the trial of Satan. They're going to watch the trial of Satan. They're going to listen to everything. So God not only reveals it to Satan, but he reveals it to the entire angelic realm, both demonic and faithful. Why does he do it? You would think he'd keep that a secret. It would be a tactic that only he would know. But now Satan knows. I can produce a seed, and my seed is going to hurt the seed of the woman. And again, the trial of Satan, the first trial, Genesis 3. The second trial is Revelation 20.10. And Ezekiel 28 provides more information. Ezekiel 28:17 through 19 specifically, also uh, Ezekiel 26:20 through 21, 26:20 through 21. That applies here too. Anyway, Christ, the Ancient of Days, releases this seemingly to us crucial secret about the seed of the woman is coming, and the seed of the serpent is coming, and the seed of the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. We can have seeds, and we're going to have conflict. He releases that, that, what we would think would be something that he would keep hidden. But it's not hidden. Why isn't it hidden? Because it's not, it can't be hidden. The fact that he reveals it means it can't be hidden. So what's the reason that he releases it? So again, Satan can produce a human seed, and this human seed will be able to exact a wound, a bruise. Some might describe it as damage. Under the Lord God Almighty. How does that work? How do I put damage on somebody that is omnipotent? To reword this information, God can be hurt. That's what he says. You can hurt me. He can bleed. He does bleed. We should, we need and we should know where, when, and how this occurred. Is this Luke 22:44? And we should read Luke 22:44. Let me go find it here. My left hand doesn't work at all now. Uh, no, I'll fight it. Let's just hang in there. I guess my left hand is has failed. Among many things that I have, I think they're all probably connected. Let's see, where am I at? 2244. And being in agony, this is Christ. Oh, I should start at 41, huh? I should start at 39. Coming out, Jesus Christ, he went to the Mount of Olives. 
as he was accustomed. So what does that mean? He goes there a lot. And his disciples also followed him. We'll talk about that in a minute. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. What temptation is he talking about? And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. So he's barely there. I mean, he's he's 100 feet away. And he knelt down and prayed. How loud do you think he prayed? How loud a voice does he have? Saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup. I don't have a cup on the board anymore. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared. Oh, that's interesting. To him from heaven, strengthening him. How do you strengthen omnipotent? I'll get to that. I'll repeat that question here in a minute. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So he's bleeding. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Again, what temptation is he talking about? Notice the slightly almost concealed elements here. Christ went to Gethsemane again. He goes there all the time as he is accustomed. It's something he wants to do. Ask the obvious question. Why does he keep going back to Gethsemane? What happened in Gethsemane? We need to know why Gethsemane draws him all the time. And his disciples also followed him. So obvious questions are exploding again. We got him everywhere. I have to dodge this thing. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has a repeated behavior. He returns to Gethsemane. I want to ask the easy question. How many times has he gone? Every day? hundred times? Five hundred times? Why does God insist on going to Gethsemane? The olive press. The olives. Why is he, oh, why is he going back there over and over and over again? Is he doing it on purpose? Please say yes. Does it have meaning that we can't even begin to calculate? Yes, it does. He's going back to Gethsemane again and again and again and again. This time his disciples followed him, which implies what? They don't always go. He must go by himself. And then he comes back to them later. Did Christ usually go alone is the question. If so, how many times? Prepare yourself for that question. How many times will come up and come up and come up and keep coming up? I submit that this is the rare rare occasion that the disciples followed him there. So finally they follow God to Gethsemane. He tells them, you've got to pray here because if you don't, you're going to get temptated. Is temptated a word? It is now. It should be a word, temptated. Clearly something of great significance occurred at this site, didn't it? What occurred here? Something that is of monumental significance. He keeps coming back. This is where he prays. Hang on a piece of cabbage in my mouth. I'll put it on my pants where no one will see it. My lovely wife is now going, Oh my, please make him stop. What in the Old Testament would rise to the level of extreme magnitude necessary to explain why God, the Word made flesh in this case, the triune Godhead, 
would gather and reveal a fundamental doctrinal truth of which the cup signifies. Because this is about the cup, isn't it? What does he say? Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. So it's about the cup. The triune God is is exposing their conversations. Why are they doing that? Again, once again, God is exposing the deepest secrets he has for everybody to hear him and see him and analyze him and figure him out and counter them if they can. Christ says aloud, only a short distance away, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Obviously, Jesus wanted his apostles to hear that. It was necessary that they knew the meanings and the purposes of the cup, the drinking of the contents of the cup. They needed to know. And who else needs to know? The angels need to know. They need to know what God is going to do with this cup. What could make God agonize, or Christ agonize in this case, be more specific? What would make Christ bleed, sweat, like great drops of blood? And I believe that it is blood here. It's not just sweat that looks like blood. How does sweat look like blood? It doesn't. Blood looks like blood. He bleeds great drops of blood. How much time was he doing this? How much time did this event require? This hour of the cup, if you want to think of it that way. How long is it here? How long did Christ speak to the Father and the Holy Spirit? Notice how I phrase that. You can find the Father, you can find the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, you can find the Son. Where's the Holy Spirit? He's definitely here. This is a triune event. It's one of the most extraordinary events in all of Scripture, if not the most. And where's the Holy Spirit? You should know that Luke 22:43 describes the appearance of another. As you heard me say, the Greek word is angelos, right? Then an angelos appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And there is debate over whether this is an angel or the angel. There's a difference. Is it Michael? Is it Gabriel? I say absolutely categorically, nope. It's not Michael. It's not Gabriel. And we, and we know that from Exodus 3.2 and Exodus 3.14 that Christ is the angel of the Lord. He's also the Son. He's also the Salvation. Would the Father send an angel, an angel, a created being, to strengthen the second person of the triune Godhead, the omnipotent Lord God Almighty? Is it possible that a finite being could strengthen the Aleph Tav, Revelation 1.8, the infinite one? How could a created thing strengthen the omnipotent God? How is that possible? Hopefully you're all saying it's not possible. <coughs> Excuse me. John 132, sorry. The context proves the angel that comes is the Holy Spirit here. It's got to be. This is a triune event exclusively. Therefore, we should be in awe and not place simple little thoughts on this pivotal, highest of priority, climatic, singular act of sacrifice, substitution, and obedience. And this is an amazing time. No little tiny little angel was coming for this. No little tiny little angel can strengthen God. Only God can strengthen God, right? So that means that's the second person and the first person and the third person of the triune Elohim. The Lamb slain, of course, being the second person in Revelation 13.8. So the Lamb slain is looking at the cup. 
Now, I should say this. There's no shortage of commentary. How am I doing for time? Oh, pretty good. There's no shortage of commentary that suggests there is a conflict between the Father and the Son. In other words, say that better. You'll read all kinds of Bible commentaries where they say, well, Christ is trying to get out of his job. And he and the Father are arguing. And there's a problem here. And Christ wants to be, he doesn't want to take the cup. And the Father's forcing it upon him. And blah, 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 sis, boom, blah. How do you say the word crap? Okay, but there's, there's a lot of that. You'll find it mostly in the secular churches. The ones that don't have a high view of the deity of Christ. The ones where he's knocking on the door and they won't let him in. We all know this is impossible. The triune Godhead, the, the us, the Elohim, does not equivocate. They don't change their mind. They don't do that. Christ is speaking aloud, isn't he? This goes back to 2 Peter 3.9, or 1 Peter 3.9. I can't remember which one it is off the top of my head. 2 Peter 3.9? It's a Peter 3.9. Where he said, one of them wishes that none should perish. That's what we're seeing here. And Christ is speaking aloud. Always ask, why is he speaking aloud? Who's listening? Everybody's listening. Absolutely right. Quit thinking that, oh, okay, just his apostles are listening. Everyone that he wants to hear is going to hear him in one way or the other. Obviously, it's crucial that the apostles know what is actually occurring at Gethsemane with the cup and why it's at Gethsemane and what's in the cup and why the cup and all of the, all of the elements here. They need to know this. Take note that they, the apostles, were so affected by what they heard and saw that they all collapsed. They passed out from sorrow. What's the sorrow? What are they, what's the, what, how does sorrow enter into the apostles here? Why are they so sad that they faint? Luke 22.40, Christ warns, tells them that they are subject to temptation. And the temptation is that which uh, contributed at Luke 22.46. They fell asleep instead of continuing to pray. They stopped praying and they fell asleep. No, they didn't. They fell asleep from sorrow. They gave up. What were they to pray for? What's what's the prayer? Why were they to pray? They're obviously in danger of being tempted by something or someone. And they didn't make it. Christ awakens them. Why do you sleep? Arise and pray lest you enter into temptation. It's a possibility you could enter into a temptation. They have the ability to enter into a temptation. God warns them that they have to keep praying, otherwise they will enter into a temptation, right? There's an if-then then. An if and a then. If you pray, then you won't enter into temptation. If you don't pray, you will enter into temptation. They have the ability to enter into temptation. What's that ability? What do we call that ability? Why would God say... You have the ability to enter into temptation if they never had any ability to enter into temptation because they're all predestined. But he doesn't treat them that way, does he? You can look at his words. I just threw that in because it's obvious. God thinks that we have free will. He treats us as if we do. Is he a liar? No, he's not. Quit saying that he is. Quit saying it's an illusion. 
It's not an illusion. He doesn't treat it as an illusion. He treats it as a definitive fact. Truth. Okay. Obviously, whenever we confront temptation in the Bible, all roads lead back to Genesis 3.4. The woman being deceived, 1 Timothy 2.13-16. Genesis 3.13. Adam was not deceived. Same verses. To repeat something I've often repeated, 1 Corinthians 15.45-49. Jesus Christ is the last Adam. We have a first Adam and we have a last Adam. Why is he the last Adam? Because he's infinite and there can never be another Adam after him. He's the last Adam. Some people will call him the second Adam and that's perfectly acceptable if you understand that no one else will be like him. Second Adam is the Lord from heaven. That's what the Bible says. This, as you know, is the key that unlocks the mysteries. You see, we, we know that Christ is the physical manifestation of the Elohim. That's who he is. He is the Word made flesh, John 1, 1 through 4. Thus it is Christ who is walking in the garden, Genesis 3, 8. When you're reading Genesis 3, 8 and God is walking through the garden, that's Jesus Christ. It is Christ who called out for Adam and the woman. It's his voice. It was Christ who put Satan on trial as the judge, John 5, 22, Genesis 3, 14 through 15. It was Christ who is Melchizedek, who brought wine and bread to Abraham and Satan, Genesis 14, 18-23. Those are all Christ. Every single one of them. He's the physical manifestation of the Elohim. All that to say the first Adam knew the last Adam. The first Adam knew the second Adam, the last Adam. They spoke all the time. They spoke to him, saw him, heard him walking through the garden. How many times, now you hope you see the question here, how many times did Jesus Christ call out to Adam, where are you? Genesis 3.9 How many times did Jesus Christ come to visit Adam and call out, where are you, Adam? He obviously knows where he is, but he wants Adam to respond to him. What is the relationship between Christ calling out to Adam, where are you? We know that's a spiritual question. And the why are you sleeping question that he asked his apostles. Was this something that Christ did every time he walked through his garden? Every time he walks through his garden, does he ask, why are you sleeping? No, excuse me, that's a, I inserted an answer there. As he's walking through his garden, does he say, where are you? That you're subject to temptation? Is Adam subject to some temptation? Absolutely he was. Was he temptated? A new word? Temptatedation? Temptatedness? One of those will work somewhere. How many times did did Christ walk through his garden and call out to Adam? How many times did he come and meet with Adam? How many times? Did he just get him started and walk away and never come back again? How many times did he walk through the Garden of Gethsemane? becomes the easy question. Was he keeping track? Was he counting? We should calculate the time interval from the creation of Adam's body and the breathing into Adam's body, the breath of the Spirit of life, Genesis 3-7. And, and feel free to offer your opinions here alongside your explanation. Can we all agree that the interval is not revealed but likely the duration exceeds what people usually think, the usual commentary. I am saying to you that Christ came to the garden to talk to Adam all the time. 
Many times. How many times? Many, many times. And that's a long interval. We don't know how long the interval is. Most people think it's just a couple of, a couple of hours. He came one time. How many times did he go to Gethsemane? He's accustomed to coming. He would be accustomed to coming to the Garden of Eden, wouldn't he? They're the same in that sense. I propose that there was a lengthy amount of time before Satan struck. As Christ is always coming. Are you sleeping? Are you subject to temptation? Are you praying? He's he's guarding his Adam. And Adam was never deceived. And Christ is regular in his arrivals when he's talking to Adam. He would come at specific days that would then demonstrate theological principles. Adam certainly knew when Christ would descend from heaven to commune with mankind. He, He absolutely knew it. It's a theological principle after all. He descends on the fourth day at the very least, doesn't he? He's always coming down to humanity. He's still coming down to humanity even though he's ascended. He's going to come back to humanity. That's what he does. He walks among us. How about Job 1.6? Was Satan allowed to bring his lies to Adam? Well, yeah, he had to be because he brought him to yeah, he brought him to Eve, so God had to allow it. Was Adam a man considered like Job? Did God ever say to Satan, have you considered my son Adam? Because he said it about Job. Was there none like Adam on earth? Yeah, none like Adam on earth. Was Adam blameless and upright? Undeceived. Sacrificed himself. Is he one that fears God and shuns evil? Yes, he is. You have this Job-Adam relationship. A man who would not curse God with his lips. Job 1.22, Job 2.10. I say yes. Adam is amazing. Most preachers say no. Adam's an idiot. The Job-Adam, neither were deceived. Neither one of them were deceived. Both of them were attacked and neither one of them were deceived. Though their wives were deceived, Job 1.9-10, 1 Timothy 3.13-16. So we know the woman was deceived, but not Adam. He did not curse God with his lips. And we know that he knew when Christ was coming because he hid himself and he had his he had his covering on, right? So he knew, okay, he's coming. He always comes this time. At the very least, we should attempt to analyze the ability of Satan to attack Adam in the garden. God must allow it. Would he allow Satan access to the organic garden considering that Satan walked among the fiery stones when he was the ruler of the first Eden, Ezekiel 28, 13-14, the mineral Eden? Satan used to be in the garden except the garden was a mineral Eden. Again, Ezekiel 28. And if you conclude that Satan was allowed to come into the organic Adam and attempt to deceive Adam, how many attempts to deceive Adam did Satan try? It is, is it not logical that Satan would repeatedly visit Adam? He sees Adam. Adam's taking his place in his mind. If he can get Adam to fall, then of course Adam fell and, and Satan fell. They're both the same. Eventually Adam does fall, right? 
Not for the reasons that everyone assumes. But he falls. He's disobedient. He does not... He, he, it's the woman you gave me. He tried to save her. That was, a, that was a sin, ultimately, because it's disobedience. Anyhow, Satan does what Satan does. Eventually, Satan, more cunning than any, crea- any creature, he isolates the woman and successfully murders her. That's the this. Or so he thought. He didn't successfully murder her. Adam prevented her from taking from the tree of life, lest she put out her hand and live forever in sin and evil. Genesis 3:22-24. And therefore, Adam changed her name from woman to Eve, the mother of all the living. The point is, yea, a point, finally, do you suppose the Garden of Gethsemane, the garden that Jesus walked among, the, the garden he was accustomed to, the garden that he constantly went to, the garden that he was given to go to, in the habit of visiting, do you think this garden is located geographically as the second Eden? Then if, if there is symmetry, then Christ and Satan would know the GPS coordinates of the tree of life and the tree of death, would they not? Of course they would. God knows everything. Satan has to figure it out. As soon as Satan sees Christ constantly going to the Garden of Gethsemane, and remember Mary calls him a gardener, Mary Magdalene, everybody knows what's going on here but most Christians. And, and Satan and Christ would know the location of the forming of Adam's body, where the body was formed exactly in the garden. Actually, it's outside of the garden and put in the garden. I should say that more with more clarity. But he would know where, where Adam's body was put into the garden when Adam was put there. He'd know exactly where that was. And the location of the deep sleep of Adam, Genesis 2.21, that's the location of Eve's body ultimately, right? The Garden of Gethsemane then takes on extraordinary significance. Judas, with Satan inside him, would know exactly where Christ would pray, wouldn't he? Christ is praying at a specific spot. What spot do you think he's praying at? And he's going to shed his blood at that spot. Sweat blood. The second or the last Adam would fulfill the prophecy, the typology that was the first Adam. What the first Adam did, the second Adam would do at a greater level, right? Where did Adam, the first Adam, where was he tormented and groaning and moaning and crying and sweating? Because that's where the second Adam, the last Adam, that's where he went. That typology, Romans 5.14. Death entered the world where Adam took the fruit. Everybody would know where that was that that pays any attention. I'm not saying that human beings know it. The angelic realm would know it. Satan would know it. God would know it, obviously. And death, as you know, was defeated at the cross above the skull of Goliath. Called Goliath, not Golgotha. That is a mistranslation. It is the place of the skull of Goliath. John 19.17. First Samuel 17.54. For those of you who yearn for closure... This is the path that leads to the bruising of the heel because I started out by asking, what's the bruising of the heel? What is it exactly? When does it happen? Where does it happen? Why does it happen? And the nature of the temptation that the disciples were to guard against, we're going to answer that too, I think. Maybe. Possibly. 
as well as why God reveals his plan to the demons and the faithful angels. We, again, puny little tiny humans, think that this is ill-advised, that God should not, should have never disclosed that Satan could produce a seed or that the angels of Jude 6, Jude, Genesis 6, uh, could cor- corrupt flesh, all the flesh. And basically, we're idiots. That's we ask the wrong questions. Being idiots, we would have attempted to prevent the Almighty God from exposing these possibilities. As, as soon as God said, the seed of the woman, we said, stop God. Don't say that because Satan's listening. He'll figure this out. That's us. Idiots. Keep in mind Matthew 16, 23 through, or I'm sorry, 21 through 23. Peter intends to interfere with Christ's plan of redemption, doesn't he there? It has something to do with the cup. He's going to stop the lamb from being slain. Remember those verses? Peter rebukes Christ. How much of an idiot would rebuke God? He rebukes God, saying essentially, you shall not be crucified. This shall not be true, is what he says to Christ. No resurrection on the third day, no sign of Jonah. None of this is going to happen. And God says to Peter, get behind me, what? Satan. Attempting to interfere with the crucifixion and the sacrifice of Christ is a satanic process. You are an offense to me, he says to Peter. You think like a man. You are not mindful of the thoughts of God. Quit thinking like men. Quit saying, don't tell Satan that the seed of the woman is coming. Don't let Satan know that it's possible for God to be a God-man. Don't let him know that. That's an offense to God. Get behind me, Satan. So without dispute, revealing the achievability to the demonic angels that they could somehow modify the genetic structure of men and animals and that Satan could spawn a son. Satan can make a son. How excited do you think he was? Obviously, that's necessary. God did it. He said that. He told them because it's necessary to tell them. And, and it's wise and it's good. How is it necessary? How is it wise? And how is it good to inform your enemies of what you are going to do before you do it? But that's what God does. He chooses his enemy. His de- he chooses the devil to be in his apostles. He keeps him right there. Why does he do that? Why did the fallen angels plan to corrupt all the flesh? Because they did it. All the flesh was corrupted, Genesis 6. It's an easy answer because God announced the coming of the seed of the woman. By telling them that the seed of the woman is coming, they said, well, let's corrupt all the flesh, including the animal flesh. Let's corrupt every flesh because we can. We just learned we can. Let's do it. Now, I never thought that the fallen angels were stupid. I still don't think that. I do not propose that they thought they could prevent They thought they could defeat God and completely prevent the coming of the seed of the woman. They didn't think they could do that. They know they can't win. So what's their plan? The plan is consistent. And that that plan is to to do what? Well, they've done all the corruption. He has to flood the earth because every flesh is corrupted except Noah and his family. And one of his family is corrupted. Again, their plan, the demon's plan is, is, is obvious. And that is that they want to forestall, delay, impede. Go back to the pigs, right? That's why we brought up the pigs. 
he says that the legion says to Christ, don't, don't uh, send us into the abyss. That's bad. Put us in the pigs. Why do they want to be in the pigs? Well, pigs at least live 20 years, maybe, maybe longer. So they're, they're trying to stall. They're trying to delay. They're trying to impede. They want to decelerate their inevitable destiny. And that destination, that in, inevitable destination, is Matthew 25, 41, again, the lake of fire. And then it's to cause as much chaos and damage as God would allow. Bring sorrow and death and make God weep. That's the plan. It's an evil plan, but it's what they're doing. And God does allow evil, Acts 14:16. He does allow it. We always ask, why does God allow evil? Because it's the right thing to do. And you have to figure out why is it the right thing to do. And I'll tell you why it's the right thing to do. Because God has given us free will. If we don't have free will, we don't have existence. He gave us existence, not just us, but to the angels and to the animals. And so therefore he has to allow evil if it comes. He won't stop it. He'll end it. But he'll allow it to go for a season. In order to do what? To prove something. To prove what? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. Again, God does allow evil. Job 1, Job 2, Revelation 9. To exist. Again, ask why, why, why. All the while knowing there is a profound truth being unveiled here. The truth of the presence of free will in the creation. That's the truth. And the demonic realm shouts out as does the evolutionary atheist that free will is an illusion. While they exercise their free will to do that. Great, greatest of ironies. If God had blocked the fallen from corrupting the flesh of mankind and animals, it would have validated their accusation against him. It would have, uh, if he did not declare the solution to evil, the seed of the woman, the lamb slain, and he w- then he would be accused of being unwilling or unable to end evil. So he announces that he's going to end evil, that he can and he will. And it also announces that he will judge evil because he's able to judge evil. I see your hands. By announcing the seed of the woman, he announces the God-man. And again, if there is a God-man, then there can be a Satan-man, and there is, and there was. And if there is a Satan-man, all the flesh can be corrupted, which it was. And hopefully that begins to get you guys launched, all of you out there. We have to move on to other problems. We have lots of problems here, specifically the bruising of the heel. Where is the bruising of the heel in Scripture? That's the question that I'm asking. Why is there even an ability to bruise the heel of Jesus Christ? Because there is an ability to do it. And the Satan man can do it. And he does it. Why? I asked in previous lectures, does Christ walk with a limp? He's got a bruised heel. Unless the bruising hasn't occurred yet. Does Christ walk with a limp? Exodus 21, John 20, 25-29 to demonstrate that Jesus Christ will carry his wounds. He's got the wounds in his hands and his feet, right? He will always have his piercings, Exodus 21, 1-6. That's the law of the loving servant, 21, 1-6 of Exodus. Where the loving servant who refuses to leave his bride and her children, this servant is taken to the gates of the city and his ear is pierced forever. 
So I'm saying to you that Christ will carry all of his wounds, including the bruised heel and the pierced ear and his pierced hands and his pierced feet. He will keep those forever. It's a forever thing. As you know, Exodus 21, 1-6 is a beautiful portrait of Jesus Christ. So the answer is yes. His wound on the heel will be there. We'll be able to see it. He'll show it to us. To this point, I have been inferring that the bruising of the heel occurs at Gethsemane. How many of you believe that the bruising of the heel occurs at Gethsemane? Gosh, you're smart for not raising your hand. You see, we still have a problem. The problem is, yea, a problem. The entirety of the bruising of the heel is not just one thing, is it? It's an entirety. It's a totality. To reword, how many elements or components do you suppose are included in the symbol of the non-fatal bruising of the heel to the seed of the woman? How big of a sign is this, in other words? Is the temptation, the satanic temptation, what I mean by that, is the temptation that he says to pray not to have, is that the satanic temptation connected to the death of Christ? Is that the disciples rejecting Christ's sacrificial death? Why do they pass out? Why do they have so much sorrow? Again, Peter is quickly and forcibly rebuked. Remember Judas Satan, Matthew 27, 3-9. Realize that the God-man intends to die to give up his life. And Satan and Judas figure that out. And they figure out that his blood is going to cover sin. And they throw the silver to the temple potter after reneging on their testimony. They try to stop it, just like Peter tried to stop it. Is that the temptation that occurs at Gethsemane with the apostles? Do they attempt to try to stop the, the sacrifice of Christ, the blood sacrifice? Remember Judas and Satan, they, they, they rush to the Pharisees and they try to get it. To, they throw the, like I said, they throw the silver. They say, We've, we, have, we have given you the wrong man. This is an innocent man. They identify. They say they identified the wrong man. And how did they identify the wrong man? Because they kissed him. So the kiss had to be wrong. And the Pharisees, how did they respond? We don't care. They effectively tell Satan, it's your responsibility to, be, to kill Christ then. Go find the right guy and kill him. Just be about it. Do what you got to do. The implications then are very far-reaching. No one could ever kill the Aleph Tav, the Infinite One. John 10, 17 through 18, Psalm 16, 8 through 11, and Acts 2, 27. You can't kill him. His body will never go to corruption. Is the temptation of the apostles, they must pray to resist. Is that centered in the, in the wanting of Christ to refuse the cup? Is that what their temptation is? He says, pray that you don't, you don't try to get me to quit. Anyway, does the cup, let me repeat it, is the temptation of the apostles, is that, that, in other words, they must pray to resist this temptation, is that temptation centered in the wanting of Christ to refuse the cup, to have the cup passed? Why does he ask the question? We let the, you know, he does, he says, if it's your will to let this cup pass, why does he even say that? He says it aloud. It must be the right thing to say. Who's listening? All the angels. All, all the apostles. Contemplate that while I, whilst I uh, rush along here. How many, i got a few minutes. 
Note that Satan is the father of lies and murder, John 8, 41, 47. Let me repeat that. Satan is the father of lies and murder, John 8, 41, 40 through 47. Those are the words of Jesus God Himself. Let me repeat that. John 8, 39 through 59. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisee Jews in the temple. John 8, 20. And one of the statements He makes is John 8, 44, where the Word of God, that's Jesus Christ again, John 1, 1 through 4, says to them, You are of your father the devil. That's what He says to the Pharisees in the temple. You are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. There is no truth in him. When he speaks the lie, he speaks from his own. i got to put that on the board. He speaks on his own. That's what God says about Satan. For he is a liar and the father of it. He's the father of the lie. There is a the lie out there. So God himself makes it clear. The origin, the source, the father of lies is who? Satan. Satan lies and, and, and the evil that he does are his own evil. It's his evil. And this is a direct refutation of the extreme Calvinist assertion that God is the source. Is it not? That he is the predestiner of all evil, all sins. That's what they say. That is not what God says. God says that Satan's sins, Satan's evil, are Satan's own. Satan's lie is his own lie. Satan's murder is his own murder. Satan's sin is his own sin. God is not the father of lies and murder and sin. It's not in God's mind. Nor did he speak or command it. Jeremiah 19.5 And the Greek word translated own is idiom. Seven occurrences, and all seven are his own or their own. Satan owns his sin, just as we own our sin. This nonsense that God predestined sin got to stop. Got to stop it. He says it definitively. Satan's sin is Satan's own sin, not God's sin. God didn't do it. God didn't predestine it. God had no, didn't command it. God didn't, God didn't speak it. It's never in his mind. Stop. You're hurting people with this crap. Makes me mad. I'm tired. I'm old. I'm sick. And it makes me mad. Okay, I got it done though, didn't I?